And so today we will be studying, like like I said earlier, we'll be studying from this verse here in First Peter, First Peter chapter one, verse three to verse nine. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it opens up, praising God. And so you see, Peter, Peter is writing this letter here to a Christian group. To a Christian group in the first century, in which he refers to in the first in, in verse one and verse two, he refers to them as God's elect. He refers to them as the chosen one of God. That God has chosen these people, these Christians, before the creation of the world. And so he's writing this letter to them. He's writing this letter to them because they were being persecuted at that time. They were being persecuted, they were suffering, they were going through persecution, and so they were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And we see in this letter, the beginning of this letter in verse 2, we see that Peter is addressing to them. He's addressing to those Christians, those exiles. In other words, people who have been pushed out of their land, people who have had to leave their land because they were being persecuted. And so Peter was writing this letter to them, to, to those in the provinces, according to the scriptures, according to this letter. He addresses it to those exiles that were scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, of Galatia, of Cappadocia, of Asia, and of Bithynia. And so this, these provinces are, are you know, nowadays in, in, in our modern time, these provinces or in the country of what we now know as Turkey. And so, so Peter was writing this letter over to him, over to them, because they were being persecuted. And so they had to leave their homeland. They had to leave their homes, and they had to move somewhere else. They had to go and stay somewhere else. And we know from Jerusalem to what is now Turkey nowadays, it's about 750 miles, you know, somewhere around that area, about 750 to 800 miles. And so for, for those of us who, who are wondering, how far is that? How far is 750 miles? How, how far is that? Well, that's further to, than from here to Seattle, Washington. And so these people have had to leave their homes and they have had to, to scatter throughout these different, different provinces. Because they feared for their lives. They were being persecuted. Of course, Christians at that time were in the minority. So they faced many persecution. Not only from, from other people, but they faced many persecution. Even, even from political leaders at that time. And so that is why Peter was writing this letter to them. Peter wanted to see how he can go about to encourage these people to live out their faith during this time of difficulty, during this time of persecution. How should, the, how, how should they be, how should they live out their faith? How can they live out Christianity during such difficult, difficult time? And of course, it really came down to these questions. How do we deal with grief? How are these Christians who are facing persecution, how can they deal with grief? How do they deal with suffering? And how do they deal? And so that's the question that we must also ask ourselves 
during these times. It's how do we as Christians, how do we deal with grief? How do we deal with suffering? How do we deal with times of uncertainties? How do we deal when troubles come into our lives? How do we go about doing these things? And it, and it is in this in which Peter gives us. And the first thing that Peter says, the first thing that Peter says, and he sets an example for us as Christians, here in verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the very first thing that Peter does is he shows us this example of how we must behave, as to how we must, what we must do during times of difficulties. In our times of trouble, in our times of suffering, what Peter is showing us is that we must always remember and continue to praise the Lord. And we must continue to worship the Lord. We don't stop. We don't, you see, we don't stop just because we're suffering, just because we're going through times of trouble. Doesn't mean that we stop praising God. It doesn't mean that we stop worshiping God. But Peter is saying here, he's setting an example here that this is the time. This is the time for us to continue to praise him. This is the time for us to continue, to continue to worship God. You know, here in the NIV version, it uses the word praise. In other versions and other, uh, in other Bible versions, some of them may use the word blessed, may use the word blessed. And so it's a very similar word to, to uh, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. But literally, it, even though it, it's, it, has a, a, it has the same word, the meaning, the meaning. You see, the meaning is different because in Matthew and the Beatitudes, the meaning of that blessed word means happiness. It means happiness. Here, here in Peter's letter, the word here means praise. And so the NIV, the NIV, that's why the NIV translated to mean praise. And so we are to praise God. We are to praise God during times of great difficulties. And we don't praise God because we love trouble. We don't praise God because we go out there because we're people who like to seek for trouble. That's not the reason why we praise God. We don't praise God because we love the trouble that comes our way. No, that's not the whole point. That's not what, what, that's not what Peter is saying here. But what Peter is saying is that we praise God simply because he is God. You see, we praise God simply because he is God. You know, many times, most of the time, many people, Many people, when they don't face any kind of challenges, any kinds of trouble or suffering in their lives, they tend to be okay. But a lot of times people, when they face trouble, when they face some kind of difficulty, when they face some kind of challenges, some kind of obstacles, sometimes people tend to turn against God. They tend to turn to curse God. They tend to want to accuse God. They tend to want to mock God. You know, all this does, all this does when we turn against God in our times of difficulties, when we turn against God in our times of challenges, all this does is it makes us more bitter. All this does is it makes us more angry. And a lot of times it makes us more hateful when we turn against God, when we mock Him, when we accuse Him. 
Many times it causes broken relationships in our own lives. Many times when we turn against God, you know, a lot of times it causes us to lose our own rational thoughts. And there's so many people out there who always say, I don't believe in God. I, I don't believe there is a God. And yet every time there's trouble, they blame it on God. And why do you blame things on God so much when you don't even believe there is a God? This, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. But people, some people, they tend to love to blame God for everything, especially when there is time, when there are times of trouble, when there are times of uncertainties such as these. When there is some kind of pandemic, they, turn, they tend to turn against God and accuse God, saying that this is all God's fault. That God is evil. They say all sorts of things against the Lord. Oh, you know, no matter what anybody does, that's that, that's their problem. That's if they believe in that, that's fine. But we as Christians, we must remember that during times of difficulties, during times of challenges, we must follow the example of Peter here. We must follow the example of Peter here, and we must praise God for who he is. We must praise him for that. If we turn and we look at the life of Job. Throughout all of Scripture, we see that there is no one that suffers as much as Job suffered. He lost his family, his children, you know, he lost his servants. He lost his wealth, he lost his, his oxen, he lost his camels. He basically lost everything. In Job's life, he basically lost everything. Not only did he lose everything, he became sick, he became ill. And so his friends come and they talk to him and they say, why don't you curse God? But Job and all his sufferings, and all his sufferings, we realize as we read his story, we realize in all his sufferings that he did not, he did not blame God. He did not sin against God. The scriptures teaches us that in all Job's suffering, he did not sin, nor did he charge God with doing wrong. Instead, what Job said, instead what Job said, when he was being asked to curse God, he says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. So even in his suffering, he was praising God. So you see, this, this here is the example that we as Christians, we need to follow. We as Christians, we need to do. We don't want this hard. He's the one that's gonna, going to lead you through this. And so today, today as we're being locked up inside our homes, today as we're not able to go anywhere, if you go out, you have to put on a mask. If you go out, you have to put on gloves, right? At times it can be difficult. At times it can be quite annoying. I make a, I make a joke with my wife and I tell my wife that you know, we're finally able to walk around the store as ninjas, right? And everybody's walking around the stores with mask on. And at times, just having to do this all the time, sometimes it becomes annoying. But regardless, regardless of how difficult it can be, we must remember that it is a time, a perfect time, for us to really lift up our voices, lift up our hands, praise our Lord, to praise God for who He is. And then Peter goes on. And Peter goes on and he says, in his great mercy. 
You see, Peter is saying here that Peter is praising God because of God's great mercy. Okay, he's praising God because of God's great mercy. And so we typically have two words that kind of describe God's love, this word of grace and this word of mercy. Now grace, when we talk about grace, grace is an extension of something. It is an extension of love and favor to someone that's, undeser that's undeserving. Okay? So you have somebody there that they don't, they don't deserve your love, and yet you're loving them anyway. That's what grace is about. But when we talk about when we talk about mercy, when we talk about when we talk about mercy, mercy is not a mercy is not about extending something, but mercy is about withholding something, withholding something in love. See. So while grace is about extending love, mercy is about withholding something. And in, in the context of Christianity, mercy is the act of withholding just punishment for someone that deserves punishment. And so when, and so when, <clears throat> excuse me, when Peter is talking here about God's great mercy, he's talking about God's forgiveness. Of, he's talking about God withholding his judgment from his people. From a people that deserves to be judged. So that's what mercy is all about. And so we learned last week, we learned last week that because God is perfect and that because God is holy, then it is in his nature to hate sin. It is in his nature to punish sin. And sometimes that's difficult for us to comprehend. Sometimes that's difficult for us to take in because most of us, many of us, we've been taught our whole life that God is a God of love. And so when we talk about the holy uh, wrath or the holy right or the holy hatred of God, it's something, it's something that's difficult for some of us. I understand that. But we must understand that if you love injustice, then you must hate injustice. We must understand that if you love righteousness, if you love righteousness, then you must hate sin. If you love people of all ethnic groups, then you hate racism. And so that's the point. When we talk about God's holy hatred, that's what we're talking about. And so if even when we read the scriptures, we see in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 to verse 19, the word of God says that these things the Lord hates. These things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. And then we see in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 8, this is what God says, For I, the Lord, love justice. And so therefore, I hate robbery and wrongdoing. And Zechariah chapter 8 verse 17 says, Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor, and do not love a false hope. For all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. And so you see, when we talk about the hatred of God, that's what we're talking about, the hatred for unrighteousness, the hatred 
for injustice, the hatred for things such as racism, oppression, and things of the sort. And so because God is a God of love and perfect and a God of holiness and righteousness, these are things that he is against. And he is totally against and so the scripture shows that we have sinned against God. And yet out of that sin, out of that sin, God forgave us through the works of our Lord Jesus. And so God made Christ into sin to pay the price for us. And we talked about that. We talked about how, how sin in the Bible is often referred to as a moral debt against God. And so we owe this debt to God that we cannot pay back. We cannot pay back this debt to God. And so Jesus Christ came and he paid for this. And so when, when, when Peter is talking about this great mercy, when he's talking about his great mercy, this is what Peter is talking about. He's talking about God withholding his just judgment for us. And, and instead, he restores us to a right relationship with him, where he is now our father, and we are his sons and daughters. Now, when we think about that, I want us to think about the word great, because you see, Peter is able to, to, to say that this mercy is great. He didn't just say mercy, but he says it is a great mercy. It is a great mercy. I, I want to challenge us. I want to challenge us and invite us to just think about this. In your own personal life, can you say that this mercy is great? That's what Peter said. Do you understand how great this mercy is in your own life? A lot of times it's difficult for us. It's difficult for many of us to understand the vastness of God's amazing love. It's difficult for people... Many times it's difficult for people to, to understand how big and how wide God's amazing love is. Because sometimes we've been led to believe that somehow we are the better ones. We have been led to somehow believe that sometimes we have somehow attained God's favor by the merits of our own lives. And that is just not true. That is just not true. The scripture says that for we all, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In which Paul says, in which Paul says in 1 Timothy, Timothy chapter 1 15, Paul says this. Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So you see, Paul is declaring himself to be the worst of the worst of the worst. And it is in this understanding, in, in Paul's understanding of who he was before God, that he understand how great God's mercy was for him. If he would have said, you know what, I'm not that big of a sinner. You know, I'm, I'm good. Because I was a Pharisee. I was a very religious, very religious guy. So I'm good. If Paul would have proclaimed himself to be that way, Paul would never have appreciated the things that God did for him. But Paul is saying, no, look, look, look. I understand how great God's mercy is. I understand how wonderful God's mercy is. I understand how amazing God's mercy is because, <clears throat> excuse me, because I see my own sin. I see that I am the worst of the worst. And because of that, God had to reach down deep, deep, deeper than anything 
just to be able to lift me up. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We talked about this when we talked about the Lord's Prayer about I mean, when we talked about Psalms, Psalms 23 a couple weeks ago, when David was proclaiming God to be his shepherd. And, and in that proclamation, David was simply saying that God, that Jesus Christ himself, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the one who sits upon the throne in heaven, lowered himself so low, so deep as a shepherd, just to be able to lift me up. And he understands the depth of God's love because he understood how low the Lord had to humble himself just to be able to lift him up. And so this, this is the mind of the apostles. This, this is the mind of those men and women in the scripture as to why they were so motivated to do the will of God. As to why they were so motivated in their faith. As to why their faith was filled with so much power. They were able to, to change the world. They were able to do things that were unimaginable. Because they understood the vastness of God's love. They understood how deep God's grace really was. How great of a mercy that God showed them. And Jesus taught us about this. Jesus taught us about this in a parable in, in Luke chapter 7 of, of a moneylender. And he says that there's two men. There's two men. One man owes 50, the other man owes $500. And this moneylender, out of the goodness of his own heart, he chose. He chose to just forgive both of them. And so Jesus comes back to ask the rhetorical question. He says, which one do you think is going to appreciate the money lender more? And of course, the answer is that the one that God forgave the most, the one who, who owed 500, is the one that is going to, to, to remember God more. The one that's going to appreciate the money lender. Now, the question to you and I is this, which one is, which one is us? Which one are you? Which one am I? Are we the one that, that sees ourselves as, as owing 50 to God only? Let's say, let's say $50, okay? Put it into modern terms. Are we the one that owes $50? Are we the one that owes 500 Which one are you and I? Many times, we, many times we're led to believe that we owe God nothing. We, we owe zero. And so because of that, we can't really, many times because of that, we can't see how great His mercy is. It's hard for us to say, as Peter said, that I will praise God because of His great mercy. It's hard for us. But if we see ourselves, if we come and we start, start seeing ourselves that, you know what, God, I am that guy. I am the one that owed 500 and I was not able to pay that and you paid it for me. Then we begin to understand, we begin to see more and more of how great this mercy really is. And so it comes down to that. Do you understand how great God's mercy is? Can you proclaim how great God's mercy is in your own lives? Which one are you? Are you the one that owes, owed 50? Are you the one that owed 500? Maybe you may, might even say you're the one that owed nothing. Which one are you? Which one are you? It's so hard to appreciate God. It's so hard to understand his mercy if we see ourselves as owing God nothing and all the things that he does 
He just did it. And it means really nothing to him. And then Peter goes on. Peter goes on and he says that it is through this mercy, through this great mercy indeed, that we are giving a new birth. You see, Peter walked with Jesus Christ for over three years. And so he understood what this new birth was all about. He heard Jesus teaching about this new birth. He heard and he also experienced it himself. A couple weeks ago, once again, we studied about the failures of Peter. Now, Peter was a fisherman, and when we're introduced to Peter as a fisherman in the scriptures, he was a failing fisherman. We see that he went out to fish, and he didn't catch any fish. So we see this, this pattern in Peter's life throughout the, the story, throughout the narrative of the scriptures, of how Peter continued to fail one, one thing after another. He's one of those guys that always wanted to do the right thing. But yet, he continues to fail. And even though he said to Jesus Christ, Jesus, I am going to go with you wherever you may go. Even if it means that I will go with you to death, I will go with you to death. If it means that I must go to prison with you, I will go to prison with you. And so he said all these things. And yet, when the time came, he denied Jesus. And so we see all these failures in, in the life of this apostle. And, and we talked about it. We talked about it. But yet, this apostle that continued to fail early on in his, in his life, he eventually became the leader of the apostles. A fisherman, a failing fisherman, changed the course of history. Because of the new birth. So he experienced this new birth. He understood what it means to be born again. It wasn't something that he was writing about, but it was something that he was living. And that's something that we as Christians, we need to be able to do. I want every single one of us to be able to experience that new birth in our life. And I want to see, I want us to, I want to see that passion in all of us. Because that new birth gives us a passion, a joy that's just unceasing. And this is what Peter's talking about, is that man, God's great mercy. It is because of God's great mercy that God gave him a new birth, transformed his life, make him into something new. It wasn't anything that he did for himself, but it was something that God did for him. You see, he says, in his great mercy, he, referring to God, has given us new birth. He's saying that God is the one that has given this to him. That God is the one that transformed him. Not that he went out there and he, he decided that, you know, he's going to change. But God is the one that changed and Peter's always, you know, be, before the, the death of Jesus Christ, Peter's always wanted to, to Change. Peter almost wanted to do these new things, but it never happened until God changed him, until God reached out to transform him. And so he's giving all this credit to God that he that it is him who has given this, me this new birth. And with this new birth, with this new birth, I have a living hope. And so the new birth here brings us a living hope. 
and and it's it's a living hope it's a living hope because it is rooted in the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead it is root rooted in a living savior and so the biblical hope here that we're talking about the biblical hope here that we're talking about is isn't about wishful thinking okay it's not about wishful thinking as the modern man may think it to be rather it is a hope that is alive it is a hope that is alive because it is a hope that is real and it is a hope that is rooted in a living savior in the greek language of the of the new testament this word hope here means an eager confident expectation of something that will come this living hope is something that continues with us in our lives it continues with us into eternity it energizes us when we are distraught it gives us power to live with an unceasing joy even in the midst of all sufferings and trouble and this is the actual context this is the actual context of which this word is being used here it is being used this word hope here is being used in the context of suffering pain and the power of this living hope can only be understood as according to the scriptures. Can only be understood by those who have received the gift of the new birth. So you see, a living hope here is not the idea that you and I tend to think about. When we think about when we think about hope, we tend to think about wishful thinking. When we think about hope, it's something like, "Oh, I hope the 49ers will win the Super Bowl." That's wishful thinking. We're not certain that's going to happen. When we, you and I, we think about hope, it's, oh, I hope that I will pass this test here. It's wishful thinking. It's not something that is certain. When we say, I hope to buy a house, a lot of times it's wishful thinking. It's not something that is certain to happen. And so the hope that we tend to think about in our days is a hope. It has to do more with just wishful thinking. But the hope in the scripture, the hope that Peter is talking about here, is the hope that has an absolute conviction that something will happen. Not that maybe, it's not maybe it will happen, but it is an absolute conviction that this is what's going to take place, that this is what's going to occur. And Peter can have that hope. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you see. He can have that hope because he was a witness and he saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he's teaching us that because he saw this thing, this thing that is impossible to, to take place, you see God perform this thing that is impossible. Then he can have this living hope. He can have this hope. And have this hope because he knows that God can take what is impossible and make it possible for him. And this hope here, this hope here can never perish, the scripture says, these verses, verse 4 to verse 5. This hope can never perish. This hope will never spoil. This hope will never fade. It is shielded by God's power. And so you can be certain. You can be certain that you will receive this because it's being kept for you. Not of your own ability, not of your own will, 
brothers and sisters. But we can be certain of this because it is being kept for us by God in heaven. And what is this inheritance? What is this gift that God is talking about? It is the gift of salvation, the salvation of your souls. In verse 9. And so what does salvation mean? Well, salvation means that we're being delivered from some kind of calamity, that we're being delivered from some kind of danger. In the sense of Christianity, we're being delivered from the wrath of God, the judgment of God. That is what salvation and so this gift of salvation, this inheritance of salvation, your salvation in God is being, uh, being kept to you by God. It is not being kept by you, but it is kept by God. You know, many times I see Christians who are so uncertain of their salvation. And it's such a stressful way to live our life. When we continue to measure things based upon our own ability. And so many times I see Christians who continue to be unsure of their own salvation. And so many times Christians will say, you know, I, I don't know. If I die today, I don't even know if, if I'm good enough to go to heaven. It concerns me. It concerns me. I'm con I am often concerned by these Christians. I am con often concerned by Christians who continue to question their own salvation based upon their own merit, based upon their own ability to keep the commands of Jesus Christ. And this concerns me because it shows me that there are pastors and teachers out there who may not be teaching about the gift of salvation correctly. And so these men and women who are constantly questioning themselves were never discipled. And with all that said, and with that in mind, it is reasonable to conclude that many of these people were never saved because, because they received a gospel that is no gospel. And so as Christians, we need to preach the gospel and then preach it again and again until our church members throughout the entire globe becomes men and women regenerated by the power of God and indwell with the Holy Spirit. So they may come to understand that no person can keep his or her salvation alone based upon their own ability and merit. If it depends on us, brothers and sisters, if it depends on us, we're all doomed. None of us has to. There will be no hope for us except a false and dead hope. But the reason why our hope is a living hope, the reason why our hope is alive, is because our salvation is kept by the living God. It is kept by the power of God, as First Peter shows us here. And that this inheritance is kept in heaven for us and shielded, not by our power, but by the power of God. And this is what that living hope is. It's about God's it's about God's ability to deliver. It's not about you and I. It's not about man. It's not about our. And of course, this, however, doesn't mean that we go on sinning. But that's a different topic for a different day, for a different sermon. I'm not going to teach. I'm not going to touch base. I'm not going to touch upon. It. But I want us to understand that we have living hope. The whole point of 
Peter, Peter's letter here, the whole point of these passages here that Peter wrote is to remind us that in times of difficulty, that we have a hope that is rooted in the living Savior. Now, hope is not some kind of false hope. It is not some, some kind of, of, of hope that is based upon wishful thinking. But it is a hope that is based upon truth. And we can face it because Jesus Christ is alive. We can face our troubles today. We can face our, the times of uncertainties. We can face this pandemic because we know that our Lord Jesus Christ is alive today. And he has overcame death. He is victorious over death. And because he is victorious over death, on hope, we can put our hope in him that we too shall overcome. And so during this time of difficulty, I just want to say this to all of us. The Bible verse in Luke chapter 18, verse 27, where Jesus says, What is impossible with man is possible with God. You see that verse? That verse there. We often use it to mean that God will make us rich, that God will make us powerful, all and so forth and so forth. We often quote it out of context so many times. And I, I'm guilty of doing that myself. But this thing, that, this thing, this impossible thing that Jesus Christ is talking about here, isn't about you and I becoming rich or prosperous or anything of that sort. This thing that is impossible here that Jesus Christ is talking about, is he's talking about salvation. The topic of this line was in reference to salvation. Jesus Christ is, in other words, Jesus Christ is saying that salvation is impossible for man to attain. But for God, it's possible. So you see, if God can take something that is impossible, and if he can t make the, take that, and he can make it possible, wouldn't you and I think, wouldn't we think that God can also take us out of our times? Of if God can take Jesus Christ, who was dead in the grave, and resurrected him from the grave, don't you believe that God will be able to take you out of his troubles? The things that are impossible, God has made possible. That's why it's so important for us. That's why all the apostles continue to, to remind us that everything that we do is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if we don't believe that God can do the impossible, then our faith will fall during times of difficulty. And so we must believe that God can do the things that are impossible for man to do. So that even during the most difficult times of our lives, like Job, we will not turn against God. Our faith will be strong enough to say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so this week, I want to invite all of you. I want to invite all of you as you're inside your homes to continue to spend time with God. To continue to praise the Lord. To continue to remember Him for all the things that you that he's done for you because it is in him that you have a living hope. Now I want to end I want to end this by um, inviting us, inviting all of you to join me for the closing hymn. And so the closing hymn
the closing hymn is in our red hymnal book, the United Methodist hymnal book, page 364. Page 364, because he lives. <laughs> 